Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In today's episode, we are talking to Nazima Kadir, a design anthropologist and author. We talk about the transition from an academic to an applied career in anthropology, and we also talk about the ethics of working within businesses, design, and working with technology. So look forward to another interesting conversation here on The Human Show. Hi, friends. We are back on The Human Show, where we're talking today with another awesome human, Nazima Kadir, principal for The October Anthropologist. Hi, Nazima. Hi, Karina. Good to have you with us today from very, very cold London, right? Yeah, London is, yeah, it was sunny today, but it's, you know, it's supposed to get super cold this weekend. So that's how it is. (laughs) Okay, hopefully uh, you're all tucked in warm with um, enjoying that weather. (laughs) Um, Okay, we're going to go right into it and um, ask our first question, which we normally ask all of our speakers, which is, according to your own definition, what is anthropology and what is technology? Well, uh, for people who don't know much about anthropology, what I tell them is that anthropology, on a very general way, is a study of culture, behavior, and societies. And it's primarily known through a methodology called ethnography, which is where you actually learn through spending time with people and talking to people rather than going into a library and reading books. Gotcha. (laughs) What about technology? Uh, I see technology as uh, as any object or interaction external to a human body that somehow allows you to do things that you can't that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do on your own. Oh, that's a very interesting definition. I, I don't think we've heard this one yet, right? That's awesome. <laughs> so Nazima, tell us, tell us a bit more about you. What, what has been your path so far with um, both anthropology and technology? Because I'd love for our listeners to understand it better, especially since you have such an interesting, um, from us, uh, background of applying anthropology. Well, I have a bit of a... I wouldn't say it's an unusual history if you look at how anthropology as a discipline has evolved. But um, I studied in university for my bachelor's. I studied English literature and gender studies. And uh, I then worked and I lived, I did projects outside of the United States for about five years. Mm -hmm. When I came back to U.S., I thought, you know, I I thought, why don't I get an advanced degree? And at that point, I had been living in uh, different countries, I had lived in Cyprus, and I had lived in Uruguay, and I had also done quite a lot of studying when I was uh, doing my bachelor's in, in Latin America and had been in all these countries. And I realized, oh, you know, I'm really interested in all these countries I've been in and thinking about them in a way that's critical. So I thought, why don't I just study anthropology since it seems like I've been doing it anyway? I then entered a PhD program. And uh, for my doctoral work, 
uh, PhDs in the US are quite different than the ones in Europe. They, they, they're very long. Mm. And, um, so for my doctoral work, I lived and worked in a squatters community in Amsterdam for about three and a half years. And I wrote about this, com- and I, I was actually a squatter, and I wrote about the paradoxes of hierarchy and authority in that community, essentially what it means to basically looking at how an anarchist community that rejects hierarchy and authority mm. ends up practicing hierarchy and authority and isn't able to talk about it. Yeah. And um, I ended up publishing that book into a book uh, by Manchester University Press, and it was shortlisted for the BBC Ethnography Award and has been featured in Wired Magazine, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and featured on, on the BBC and all this nice stuff. So that's that world. <laughs> um, and what happened after that? So after I finished my PhD, I'd been living in Amsterdam and I, you know, Amsterdam's quite nice, but I decided to move on. I came to London and I thought, you know, what what is next? And I essentially learned that in the world of commercial research, there's a lot of interest in uh, ethnography, uh, cultural analysis, semiotics, all these skills that I just kind of had based mm-hmm. on my academic background. And I started having meetings with people and started as freelancer and slowly kind of build up my portfolio. And meanwhile, I was doing these kind of cool art projects with artists who were really interested in ethnographic methods. I was revising my PhD into a book and writing, kind of being both active at academic conferences, but also in the art world. And at a certain point after I got my book contract and I submitted my manuscript to the publisher, I realized it was time for me to work full time. And I've been essentially building and running uh, insights functions at various agencies in London since then. Hmm. And this is this is kind of like how you, um, do you want to say something? Um, I was just wondering like where your interest in technology lies. Oh, so my interest in technology, I guess my, I, I guess I'm interested in, on a general level, kind of how people, especially now, how they, there's a bit of a, fetishization of this whole digital thing that's happening. But I do see technology in a broader sense. I don't see it just in terms of digital products or products that require electronics. Like I see it more in terms of anything that is, like I mentioned, any kind of object that somehow enables Mm. some kind of activity that you wouldn't be able to do. So, for example, having glasses to see, I see Mm -hmm. that as a technology, any kind of intervention that kind of requires some kind of uh, scientific process. So I see it much broader mm-hmm. beyond digital, beyond electronic devices yeah. or screens. You know, I have a, it's a much broader understanding of what, how tech works. Mm. And are you right now interested in a specific type of technology or a specific type of um, enhancement object capability? Well, I think I'm, I'm in... I think I'm generally interested in how kind of off the tech world is and how off the, the digital world is. It just seems like okay. there's some there's so many interesting things that can be done and they're not being done mm. due to maybe a, a lack of imagination or a large bias or or a kind of a, a mentality that's very restricted by a restricted worldview. 
and that there's so much more that could be done actually than that's currently happening. Okay, so you're interested more in the human ecosystem around the technology itself, right? Well, I guess I'm just I I I, I think tech, I mean technology, and when we say technology, I think in this context we're talking about digital products mm-hmm. and we're talking about digital and electronic products more or less, right? <clears throat> like. Um, integrated whatever integrated services um i think that there's like this obsession with it mm. but necessarily is probably doing we're, we're doing about 10 percent of what we could be doing with it and mm. it's um it, it actually reflects social relations rather than uh changing them okay so i was wondering from your work as a freelancer in this space how have you seen <clears throat> How have you seen the companies approaching this topic of technology when it comes to um, development? Well, I think in terms of, you know, the world of industry or the world of mm-hmm. cultural research, like tech, tech is always seen at, in terms of software, digital products, um, user interfaces, right? And so it, it depends on whether if if a company is very tech focused then design is seen as kind of the soft part if a company is very design focused uh research is seen as soft and uh the tech is seen as secondary more or less the actual actual, uh development of the um software is seen as secondary so i think there's a lot of interest in these digital products Mm -hmm. as having a potential for making a lot of money. Yeah. How is it in the art scene? How do they see technology? <laughs> um, I mean, it's hard to generalize, but I think that, I mean, I, I think, I mean, so I, it's hard to generalize how, how the art scene sees, how artists see technology, because there's a huge range of how artists could either, some integrate it into their artwork, some use tech as their artwork, mm. How have you seen technology being embedded into arts um, through your experience so far? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not super in the art world, but I think, I think there's, a, there's just a big diversity in terms of how, pe- how artists mm. use tech. But I think what's really interesting is that uh, whether they actually integrate it into their art practice, pretty much everyone is actively using that in their everyday life, so... Mm. Um, one, one of the other things that we wanted to ask you, because you, you, you seem to have had a very um, impressive um, kind of career in anthropology with your PhD and being recognized of being valuable outside of the academic sector as well, um, and then transitioning to this kind of more applied sector. And we wanted to ask you, how have you experienced that transition? How have you, you know, uh, found um, working in this different environment and applying anthropology? Well, I think, I mean, there's a huge shift when you go from uh, academia, especially anthropology, mm. which is very anti-capitalist and which looks generally academic anthropologists really look down on any and working in capitalism, essentially mm. see it as um, dirty and <laughs> they see it as um yeah, they see it as like criminal activity, more or less. And they especially are kind of disgusted by, you know, if you've been trained in a very left wing discipline like mm-hmm. anthropology, seen as a betrayal to the discipline to work for a corporation mm-hmm. or for 
interests. So it's, it's quite a big mind sh- mindset shift from being in an environment which is fundamentally anti-capitalism to working in a capitalist environment. Hmm. So how, how did you deal with that? I mean, it just took me a lot of time, I think. You know, I mean, in the first time, my first couple of freelance projects, I was it was quite tense about that, about being in a, an environment that was, uh, you know, like capitalism. And had I was surrounded by people who had very different mentalities than the mm-hmm. kind of people I was spending a lot of time with. But then, you know, slowly I became used to it and realizing that I was in my own bubble as well. And that um, finding nice things about the work, things that I really enjoyed about it, things that were really interesting, and creative about it and being able to. So it was, it was really about like being learning how to be in a new environment, learning how to be in a new organizational mm-hmm. structure learning how to communicate in a different way, finding out what were the expectations Hmm. and finding out what were, what were my values as well in that. Can you tell us a bit about the first project that gave you intellectual pleasure? (laughs) Um, uh, In terms of outside academia or inside academia? Outside in the applied sector. Um, I think I was quite lucky because actually my very, very first project, I was working on this big um, semiotics and ethnographic research project for this giant um, soft drinks company. Mm-hmm. And I was researching in Mexico and in the U.S. And um, so it was really, really cool to just be like hanging out and visiting all these various places in Mexico to have these cultural immersions in order to figure out some insights that may or may not apply for this, uh, for the strategy for this global brand. So I was really lucky, actually. I was hanging out. I had a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom, and I could just visit and explore all these really cool places in Mexico City um, as part of this applied ethnographic project. Hmm. And, and how was, tell us a bit more about your process of, um, figuring out the organizational culture and kind of finding a way of speaking to those insights in a way that drives, um, let's say, understanding um, in the stakeholders of the company? Well, I think with each each company I worked in, they had a different structure and there was different emphasis. So uh, uh, companies that were more research-oriented and were interested in culture and people, uh, that was, it was really much easier to talk about the things I was interested in and things that I was finding um, versus uh, companies which didn't have much, didn't really value research, didn't really understand it. They, they were much more interested in objects or in creating, in creating objects mm-hmm. uh, rather than researching people so that um, the language just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, as part of learning about these different organizational contexts, I had to also learn about myself and the kind of th- uh, environments I valued mm. and the kind of workspace I valued and what kind of organizational cultures I, I value as well. Yeah. And how about your approach to ethnography? Um, how has that transformed in, in doing applied work? Um, it hasn't actually changed that much. My approach itself hasn't really changed that much. I think that the big difference is that there's there's actually my approach to ethnography hasn't changed, but there's a lot more of emphasis on creating assets mm. that need to be um, 
that needs to be shared with both the research team and the client team. And especially with the client team, making sure that the assets uh, look, you know, look beautiful, Mm -hmm. right? And are aging and are something that they can share with their stakeholders. So that's, that's a consciousness that I didn't have, obviously, when I was doing my PhD, because there were no stakeholders, it was just me. (laughs) And um, with that, let's say the the artifact, which symbolizes your work, like I know that in academia, it's like um, a paper, it's a written document um, that kind of speaks to the topic. Do you have different types of artifacts that you build now when you're doing applied work, or you basically still stick to mainly the written word? Well, I mean, it's... I mean, there. I mean, what's really what's what's really important in academia, or either either even in like the public world, is that you know it's written it's written work, but it's also that it should somehow be publicly accessible, mm. right? Mm-hmm. While in the private sector, the work is not publicly accessible. Like it's generally under non-disclosure agreements, they're confidential, and there's actually very strict covenants to sharing. So mm-hmm. the assets are always towards the internal organization and trying to be successful in the internal organization. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I've gotten much more design savvy <laughs> while, while not being a designer, um, understanding when, you know, the importance of making sure that things look beautiful and engaging. So, and that's partially about uh, applying, understanding design principles to your clients mm-hmm. and being able that you know just like normal people like to engage with beautiful objects or beautiful assets so do clients and so you know especially if you're working within a design context it's important to always you know walk walk the talk right like be as engaging to your client as you would to an end user yeah and do you have a designer as part of your team or I, I work with I work with a team of different people. So depending on the project, I know a lot of designers. So depending on the project, I will um, enlist a designer who is mo- more appropriate than another. Okay. And and what is the composition of that team that you normally work with? Again, it depends on the project. But like, if it's um, I like I personally like you know I I tend to use multiple methods when I uh, design my projects and depending on the method, you know, it will either be, depending on how complicated it's going to be, I'll either be kind of doing quality and oversight and different people will do the nitty gritty or I'll be do, I'll take ownership of one method and other, you know, it's just, yeah. it just depends on the objectives of the project. And do you also work with other um, people that are not anthropologists, but they practice ethnography? Yeah. So, um, I, I, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I work with a lot of design researchers, people Mm -hmm. who have, um, backgrounds as designers and have moved into the research world. Mm -hmm. And I also work with sociologists who become (laughs) experts. And I also work with, um, brand strategists who do ethnography. So I do, I, I, depending on the the needs of the project, I will enlist different people. So if I need a very rigorous academic mindset, then I'll work with another academic, or at least I'll work with someone with an academic background. If I need someone who's going to be, who has excellent client management skills mm-hmm. and can align, I might I might be uh, indexing higher on those skills while knowing that they can, they're great researchers as well. Well, you know, if I need someone who can who needs to create 
wonderful assets, but who can also do research. Like it just depends. Like if I have this, if I have better research skills than my team, then I might, the team doesn't necessarily, the team is meant to complement each other rather than duplicate, you know? Mm -hmm. And have you found any difficulty in, I know that anthropology has a, its own special lingo. um, And I've experienced that myself um, and you in conversation, but also in the way you deconstruct um, discourse analysis or, you know, any practice of analysis, you have your own way of kind of, you know, doing it because you're an anthropologist. So have, have you experienced some of those difficulties working with people from other backgrounds, like trying to find a common language um, of understanding? Um, not really, because, because in the commercial world, a lot of uh, pretty much the only uh, research method with, in which you're researching live people uh, that is very well known are focus groups. Yeah. So every every other type of method has to be explained mm-hmm. to people who are not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. You have to explain what it is. You have to explain what you can get out of it and you can explain why it's what you can, you can, why you would use that method for whatever project you're on or whatever is the client objective. So I'm quite uh, accustomed to using language that everyone understands. I tend not to use jargon. That's great. Was that something that you always had or you've just grown into it as you um, developed your experience in the applied sector? I've always done that. My book is uh, has very little jargon in it as well. It's even though it's it was published by academic press, it's written with the mind with the understanding that someone who's like an educated 23 year old would be able to understand it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> And so I just wanted to ask, like, what makes you as an anthropologist, like what is makes you unique to the team? Like what type of perspective do you bring into that sort of dynamic in a project? In So which, uh, can you just repeat the question? Do you mind? Like in a team, there's all these different researchers, like what makes that you as an anthropologist stand out? I guess, yeah. Um, well, I think that there's, I mean, as an, I think as an anthropologist, I understand, I have kind of a, first off, there's a few things. First, I understand that you can use lots of different methodologies depending on the objective. So I don't ever fetishize any, any methodology. I don't fetishize ethnography versus focus groups versus uh, academic literature reviews. Like I understand what you can get out of each one, what's good and what's bad out of each uh, methodology. That's one thing. So I have kind of a quite a, a broad methodological range. So that means that if if something has to be delivered in five days versus 30 days, I can give different options. And I think the other is kind of depth and rigor and mm-hmm. uh, knowledge and an understanding of like, like how biased we all are and the limits of all of our knowledge. And I think that that's something that is very valuable and useful. Yeah, I think reflexivity and awareness of the bias is something that it's rationally something that everybody can maybe uh, understand, but like to actually practice it in the day to day, it's really difficult. Um, I love that. That's, That's a great skill that an anthropologist can bring to the table. Azima, I wanted to ask you a question that um, we sometimes ask our um, speakers, which is about the ethics of doing research in the applied sector. 
So it's, it's very different versus doing it in an academic sector. But how do you deal with, with the ethics of the work that you do? Well, I make sure that everything I do is ethical and is under kind of the guidelines of the Market Research Society, mm-hmm. which means that um, everyone who participates knows exactly what's going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, that they receive an incentive for their participation, and that if that they, even if they receive an uh, incentive, they're allowed to leave at any point and they don't actually have to participate. And as at any point, this, um, this ethics kind of differed or was complemented by the ethics of the companies that you worked with or more or less they're aligned (laughs) well i think that um like i've always made sure that if i'm doing research in any kind of context i always look at what are the ethical implications Mm -hmm. and i research it and i figure it out and if I'm working with a company that doesn't is not aware of that, I will inform them if what they're asking me to do is within eth- ethical guidelines. And I'll and if they're not aware of these standards, I will also mention that there might be a liability if they don't comply to ethical guidelines. And that's kind of that's that's kind of my job is to say, okay, like. If you're going to do research, this has to be done this way. I think you cut down a bit um, over there at the end. Uh, This applied sector is very, you were talking at the beginning about this perception that it's within academia of working with capitalistic um, companies. Um, Where do you think it comes from? Which one? This 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 um, discourse that it's inside the academic space of anthropologists kind of going outside in in the capitalistic world, and I, I I'm asking this also in the context of how many people nowadays are graduating every year versus the number of people that can actually follow an academic path. Um, so, I I was wondering about that tension, right? Because you have on one side this discourse that favors academia versus going out there, but on the other side, statistically, you have to make a living somehow if the academic space can't um, sustain you. What what would you say to that? Well, I think that, um, unfortunately, uh, right now, like, for me, the closest... I think the academic sector really is an episode of Game of Thrones right now. And <laughs> it really, I mean, it's kind of shocking, but essentially it means that there's like, you know, there's like a wall and there's all these like zombies. And those people are people who are on zero, zero hour contracts, you know, and the people who are in the, in the wall are, are really busy with kind of university politics but, you know, they're terrified of being outside that wall because they're going to be a zombie, too. And that really impacts what happens within academia. Like you can't you, there's very little negotiating room for an improvement in conditions, labor conditions of pay. And there's a lot of bullying and abuse, you know, mm. and it's really problematic. And so, I mean, if if I, I, I have gotten a lot of negative feedback from my academic friends for what I do but Mm. I mean ultimately like there's there's a lot of tension around labor conditions in academia and sustainability around them and the abuse and exploitation of the majority of people who's working in it so I think that 
yeah, while I do get criticized from working in capitalism, I don't see working in academia as not being working in capitalism. I see it as much worse because you're enabling your colleagues to be exploited, which is really unacceptable. Hmm. And how about your um, your book being recognized um, as a more public, you know, a mean, um, a, a public work of achievement? Would that did that kind of change some of those perspectives inside academia about your particular path? Um, well, I mean, again, like there is a whole range of people in academia who have different reactions, but um, it's it's I, I get a lot of a lot of people who are either want to transition to the private sector, write to me mm-hmm. based on my book and based on what the kind of uh, work I've written about kind of leaving academia and problems about academic life. I haven't really heard from people who are, who want to stay in academia. Um, mm-hmm. They, there's just a lot of, te- I think there's a lot of tension around the issue. So they either say something snarky or they don't say anything at all. So. <laughs> okay. Do you see do you see this changing slowly with the new generations of um, of graduates? Well, I, I mean, I get a lot of people who write to me who ask me for career advice, but I don't really think that that's the answer. I don't think it's good to get a PhD and then go into the. I don't think you need a PhD to be in the private sector. I think you could do a great job without having a PhD. You know, so um, I think that the graduates programs need to be a lot smaller. Mm. And there needs to be a, you know, a drastic shift in how universities are structured. Yeah, we've 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 seen this also in from um, a lot of other people that speak to this reality of the academic space today, especially with social science. Um, yeah, I think it's 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 a great point. Um, and what would you say your PhD has brought to um, your growth as an anthropologist? Well. Um I mean, I think doing the work, yeah, made me. It made me into an anthropologist, actually. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I think that, yeah, just you know, doing the. I was. I would never have considered myself an anthropologist, and then I entered the PhD program and did all these courses and took all these exams and wrote wrote a PhD. And only through that process did I feel like I became one. Okay, so. Do you think it's possible then to become one without this process? I think you can become an anthropologist through reading and doing research, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's to just do commercial ethnography. I think you need to actually embed yourself into the discipline. I don't think you need a PhD or a BA mm-hmm. to read, and that's hard. It's hard to do it. Very few people have this the, the discipline to read all everything it takes to have that kind of breadth of knowledge. Yeah, without a structure around them. Mm. Have Have you met from these multidisciplinary teams that you've been working in so far? Have you met people that have a more kind of a native, uh, how do you say, like an innate capacity to be very good observers and and uh, decomposers of culture to a certain extent without having the academic training? Well, I think I mean I, I've met extremely talented and brilliant people of all kinds of. Uh, backgrounds, you know, I mean, I mean, I think anthrop- if we're talking about anthropology, it's a discipline, you mm-hmm. know, and it's a very complicated discipline that has to do with the history of the of anthropology. It has to do with all these like all these ethnographies written for the past hundred years. It has there's a whole methodological component. There's a lot going on 
to be an anthropologist, but to be like, you know, insightful and intelligent and well-read and an understanding of different cultural forms and seeing how very different uh, social movements and social interact. I think there is about, it's about reading and observing and being curious, you know, I've met plenty of people like that. Great. Um, I just wanted to ask because you we touched on your book, but we never actually talked about what it was about. I was wondering if you could just explain about it a bit. Sure. It's about basically um, it's about I, I live and work in an anarchist squatters community in Amsterdam for about three and a half years. And basically it's about uh, looking at the paradoxes of a community that rejects hierarchy and authority, but then practices hierarchy and authority in a way that they're not able to talk about. What did they think about your book becoming so um, visible, publicly visible? I mean, some people have been really, really supportive and really love it, and other people are really pissed off. <laughs> in, the, in the community, right? Yeah. Um, I, I remember my, my favorite um, ethnography is Lila's Abu Lugod Veil Sentiments. I still yeah. like, I think I've read it like five or 10 times. I just love it. Um, and she does this beautiful, it was also, I think, her PhD thesis. Um, and she does this beautiful reflection um, in the last uh, edition because it was, I think, almost 20 years. So she, she does this beautiful reflection about how the community was impacted by her work there. And, um, and yeah, in, in, in some good ways and in some not so good ways. Yeah. And then, and then I was wondering. Um, that is now my question: uh, How have you seen your work kind of going back and, and contributing to the community, or did you ever look at it in that way? I actually never did. I think that, and I and I read about this in the book. In the book, what was the most because, and this is because in the world of social movement researchers, people always see their research as being a contribution to the movement, mm. but never a contribution to the movement was a contribution movement is being an activist right so if you and you actually participate in actions and you put your body on the line and you actually do the organizational work needed and you participate that is a contribution Hmm. writing is never a contribution to social movements unfortunately Hmm. because many people are willing to write write, but very few people are willing to actually be activists so so what was your intention um with the book itself what what were you um attempting to contribute towards um i guess you know the book is based on my phd and i was really interested the thing that kind of when i was when i was writing my notes the things that kept coming up were these stories that kept going wrong and um and and issues of power and hierarchy mm-hmm. between people really did not want to have any power and hierarchy between them. So that just felt like in the end, it was a central, it was the theme of the book. Mm. And it resonated with people, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's, yeah, I've gotten very positive responses. Yeah, I think, I think power and hierarchy. I wanted to ask you, have you ever done organizational culture projects where you study dynamics of power and hierarchy inside um, corporations or, or teams of any sort? Um, I have not actually not done any organizational uh, hierarchy projects as of yet, although I find it very interesting. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that because when you when I was reading about your book, um, it, it it 
it reminded me of, you know, my first um, applied anthropology project that I did in Amsterdam was in organizational culture. Um, I tried to do consumer um, innovation, but um, in the organizational culture was that space where they found my um, anthropology experience most interesting. So, and the main theme that came again and again as I was studying those groups was power and hierarchy. Um, and at the end, every project of organizational countries, culture seems to be a deconstruction of social dynamics through power and hierarchy. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, I think the, and I, I was thinking, I think any person that works in, a, in an environment, a social environment would resonate with a reflection on that, um, I would say. Yeah. Especially if you if you manage to do it in a way that it's approachable and understandable. For our listeners, we will link your book below so that they can go check it out. Cool. Uh, Nazima, what's next for you now? Where do you see yourself going on this path in the next few years? Um, I think with me, I'm just going to... Um, what will I do? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I've been, I've been like approached by academic presses to write another book but actually I'm thinking now of approaching a uh, an, a very interesting popular press mm-hmm. mainstream press but not mainstream but not not an academic press um, to write to to write a book with 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 I, I think what, because I think academic publishing I is really sleazy I don't like it although Manchester who, who published my book I think they're wonderful mm-hmm. In general, I think they're, the whole industry is kind of horrendous. So I want to, um, I want to do something different. And I'm thinking of maybe writing another book, potentially, mm-hmm. or writing, doing some kind of writing project. Do you have a, a specific a topic of interest for the book or not yet? Not yet. Not yet, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. Okay. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to ask you about the story behind your name, um, the October Anthropologist, if you can yeah. share that. <laughs> so um, essentially, I um, the reason why I chose the, uh, the, the word October is because if you look at the history of anthropology as a discipline, it had various stages. And in the first stage, you would have um, people would write about kind of the other, but they would write from a quote unquote safe distance. They'd sit in like a hut and they'd look out and they'd write, they'd write about the people they saw, mm-hmm. you know, and send letters back. And the, and the second stage became, it became about it. Then and they kind of developed into this, like, you know, participant observation, Malinowski thing, and that's sort of the second stage of anthropology, the spring. And then the summer has been this like, you know, this very diverse academic discipline that has gone beyond positivism. And the fall of anthropology, the autumn, is about going into, you know, the, the going into the world of commercial research and how that has impacted it. And also October. So that's the fall is October, mm-hmm. but also. October is like a revolutionary month. There's a lot of revolutions happen in October. And I just also think that the word has a lot of gravitas mm-hmm. and it's actually a beautiful word. So I, I, I chose that word and then I used the word anthropologist to talk about actually my profession, but also to talk about the discipline, which has like a rigor and a history. Oh, that's beautiful. 
It's, it's always interesting to understand the meaning behind um, this kind of business definitions because they, they're also a form of identity making of some sort. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of uh, symbolism around it that kind of speaks a lot to the person that chose it. I always notice, I always take note of the people who ask because most people don't ask, but some do. And then, <laughs> you know, then I tell this whole story and they're always like, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> I remember when, when I um, used to work in these big corporations, they, uh, they have this, also this kind of normalized words that are full of symbolism, but, but they're not often um, summoned. You know, like through a question of uh, why is this called in this way or why are you doing this like that? And then when you kind of open the door, then there's this whole reverence around explaining you why. And yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Um, I think that's it from our side, right? What do you think, Angel? There's one thing I want to ask, but it's not related to the podcast. No, go for it. Um, I saw in your profile that um, one of your work's been with a sitcom or something. I was just interested to know more about that because I found that quite interesting. <laughs> well, my so my doctoral work before it became a book, while I was um, a, basically an art collective in the Netherlands said we were interested that they were interested in making my PhD into a sitcom. So about a year after I moved, in, moved to London, I worked with a collective based in the Netherlands, and it was a collective based of designers and writers and artists. They just making the making a, a sitcom project from the book and so it's online you can see it it's a four <laughs> episode sitcom it's in english and it's kind of weird and kind of fun all at the same time and it was you know it was what it was uh, it was an art project it like toured around the world and it was a whole art story which was really fun I'm excited to check it out. We're going to put the links below for our listeners too. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very impressive. We've, uh, we haven't spoken yet to anybody that has such a blended experience of academia intersecting the public sphere um, into such a, yeah impressive way, like this intersection with art, the intersection with um, public press. I think it's awesome. Thank you. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully it will, it will inspire some of our listeners um, of all these, you know, myriad of ways in which anthropology can, you know, lead you on a path that is not necessarily the classic academia or commercial ones, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for this opportunity. This was fun talking to you both. Thank you, Nazi Ryan. Have a nice day. You too. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.